Uh, this morning, as we as we look over here, we have this baptism here. Um, if uh, maybe I haven't met you this morning, I don't know where you're at or where you come from or how you think. Um, I'm going to talk about Jesus and His kingdom this morning. Um, we have baptism here, and because at the end of the service, we're going to do two unique things. Jesus left two things, physical things, for us to do as Christians to remember Him and His message. He gives us this thing of communion, where we take bread and and juice, wine. Take these two things, and those He gave uniquely. To help his people do it again and again and again. Remember how he gave us the water. Okay? So the communion is about how he gave us the water, shall we say. The water represents the newness of life. Being being completely born again and new. A whole new person. A whole new identity. So baptism doesn't save you. Communion doesn't save you. Baptism is given by God to do one time as we come to know Jesus. And after we put our faith in him, and the way he does the New Testament is like right after you put your faith in him, not after you let it settle in for a while. But Jesus loves this. He's saying, come to me, give, give all of yourself to me. Then he may give all of himself to us, right? And so he gives this really weird ritual called baptism where you stand in front of a bunch of people and some of his people put you in the water just like Christ took away your old life and gave you a new life. And you, by standing there saying like, hey, this is the new me. I belong wholly and completely to Jesus. I'm all in with Jesus. So baptism represents salvation of God by faith. Then we take communion ongoing in a way that helps us remember again and again and again how did God give us that new life. He sent Jesus to not only teach but to live perfectly, earn a man's righteous life because he has always been God, became a man and lived perfectly, earn man's righteousness die a man's death because there's a death penalty to pay that Scott Burns needs to pay because I've been a rebel. So he pays the death penalty for me and then he rises in newness of life. And so he gives us communion to again and again remember his death. Love so strong that he would lay his life down for us. And love not so foolish that he knew he needed to do it. See, Jesus dying on the cross demonstrates the fact not only could you never get yourself made new in God, acceptable to God. But the only way Jesus himself could do it is by dying for you. So for us ever to think that we could become simply acceptable, past the bar, by niftying up ourselves is just foolish. Number one, the picture shows you it's not niftying up. The picture shows you it's all of you belonging to him. A whole heart of yielding. Here, here I am, Lord. You're going to be my king and my treasure. And the communion reminds us again and again it will never ever be, brothers and sisters, or people who are listening to me for the first time, it will never be by the righteousness of you that you will be made new. It will only be through the blood of Jesus. And that blood is precious to us. It's, it's the remembrance of the amazing bl- the love of Jesus, that he would love us so much. Love um, Scott Burns and a Calvin Brown and a Kurt Yandel so well that he would again come to this earth and live this life and die for us, die for us, and then hang on that cross for the very ones he's dying as everybody turns their backs on him. That is amazing love. That is the amazing love of the blood of the cross. It's what we remember in communion. So I just use baptism, and I use communion. Baptism is a demonstration of, of wholeheartedly belonging to God. It's, it's the offer of what's offered in salvation. And communion is the payment mentioned in the gospel. Remember those two things, and they kind of frame a little bit how we enter this text today. This text today is in chapter 12 of Romans. 
And it comes after chapters 1 to 11 in Romans. Chapters 1 to 11 in Romans is all of this amazing undergirding and under all the underpinning and the economics of who God is and who we are and the connectivity between Him and us. And it finishes in 9 to 11, some of the most hot, amazing, humbling chapters in Scripture with this theme of mercy. The crazy thing is God is incomprehensible to us. He shows, he shows us a little bit of himself, and the more he shows us, the more it confuses us, and the more in our rebellion makes us go, oh, well, he's not real then, right? We do dumb things with what God shows us. But the story in 9 to 11 in Romans is amazing, amazing mercy. So maybe you don't know Jesus this morning. Maybe you haven't quit trying and wholeheartedly yielded yourself in faith and say, God, I am separated from you. And I want to fully belong to you, to sit under your full love and acceptance, to be owned by you. And I know that that will never happen by my performance, but only through trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. Maybe you haven't done that. But my friends, you could do that right now or halfway through the sermon or in the middle of communion or baptism. It doesn't matter. All matters is that authentically you no longer would offend the work of Jesus by saying you don't need it. Wouldn't offend the goodness of Jesus by saying you're good enough or you know something better. I've seen better because you haven't seen better. So we have this framing in this passage, and this passage then goes out to the people of God about how to live. And it's based in chapter 12, verse 1, on this appeal that says, you can look at it, it's Romans 12. We're going to keep going. We're going to be just in Rome. I'm not going to have you turn anywhere else but Romans 12. So you don't have to hurt your flipping finger. Romans 12, 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the mer- Why does it say, I appeal to you by the mercies of God? Because 9 to 11 have just been the outpouring of the mercies of God. And so if you've got the mercies of God, you say, oh man, I don't deserve this. And I have the mercy. He goes, if that is all true, if 9, 10, 11, and all of 8, if all that's true on you, he goes, I appeal to you. This is the Apostle Paul, by the power of the Spirit, saying, I appeal to you. Then listen to me. There is a right response to this. If you live under the mercy of God, how then shall you live? We don't then flip back in the Old Testament and pull out the hundreds of law. There's a new way, right? This is the new covenant. Jesus is a king, a wonderful, good king. And he is showing us how he wants us to live. So I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Dempsey taught on this a few weeks ago, did an amazing job. We now belong to the Lord, and we keep laying our lives down like, my life is yours. How do you want me to use it, right? A living sacrifice. So we, we, children of God, we are the kingdom of God that he has bought with his blood and has rescued from our entombment to sin and made us sons and daughters. So when, the, so when, when Noah pops back out of this water, the picture is what has already happened. After God has done his work on Noah, Noah is nothing short of an actual adopted son of God, like me, or a daughter of God, like you, right? We're newly adopted and to be in his kingdom is to be adopted. And it's an amazing, amazing thing. And we become judicially like our older brother Jesus. At the moment we put our faith in Jesus. But on this earth, we are being progressively conformed into the image of Jesus. And so as time goes along, the moment Noah would give his heart to know Jesus. I'm talking about him, he's not here, but we had a good discussion about this. The moment he gives his heart to Jesus, boom, the record, he is forgiven of rebellion boom the record he's given full righteousness he can't improve upon that and it will never go away 
This is not about unlosing your salvation. This is about your divine judicial record sealed by the blood of Jesus, completely forgiven, completely made righteous. Given forgiveness, given righteousness. And so Noah, as a young man, if he's authentically put his faith in Jesus, that is a set deal. And then as he lives on this life, he will look more and more and more and more like Jesus. Through waves of life and failure and temptation and struggle and victory, he will repent and grow more and more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Very Noah-esque, but like Jesus. And that's the only thing God does salvifically. He saves you and sanctifies you and someday will completely knock it all off as you walk into the throne of heaven, right, glorified, by Jesus, our great Savior. And we saw our older brother Jesus, particularly in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was so different than us sinful human beings. What we saw was what Jesus was really like in the Gospels. We heard and saw his heart in the Gospels. Again and again in this sermon today, I'm going to reference what we saw in King Jesus. Jesus was true, 100% true, kind, brave, generous, forgiving, sacrificial. This is his heart, and this is his kingdom. So that king, Jesus, is making a kingdom. It's making him make a kingdom out of us, right? We're, we're the ones he's saving and bringing into that kingdom. And so we become like our king. The kingdom follows the king. So just as Jesus was true and kind and brave and generous and forgiving and sacrificial, that's why when we lay down our lives as living sacrifices, we follow the same traits. But thankfully, we don't just have to just vaguely think about what it looks like. There is this book. It's called Romans, chapter 12, verse 9 and forward, and he gets down to the nitties and gritties of it. So as we read Romans 9, it's going to go for a couple weeks here. Not 9, sorry, 12, uh, verses 9 on. As we read for a couple weeks here, I'd like you to think in terms of not only what, but intensity. Not only what, but intensity. So the way it's written here, um, and I can explain it over a cup of coffee later if you want. The way it's written here is things that are the heart of Jesus and the intensity of that for us. So what does it mean for me to look like Jesus? It's going to look like these things to come here. So follow with me in verse 9. Because what we're doing is this. Listen to the words of 1 John 4, 17. Don't turn there. I told you we're not going to turn. By this is the love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. As he is, so also we are in this world. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are progressively being, look to, being made to look more and more and more like Jesus. How should you live? You would live like Christ because as he is, so also are we in this world. All right, Romans chapter 12, verses 9. Um, I've got six points today because it's about that many verses. Actually, there's five, but one of them splits in half. First one, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Now, here's one of the beautiful things about this text. Let's say you are 10 years old in this room this morning. I think by and large, if you're reading these verses, you can get what Jesus is saying in these verses. You can get what it means to look like Jesus, what it means when when Jesus wants you to lay your life down as a living sacrifice. So let's just say you happen to be a Hurtado in your room, in the room, and you've got some brothers and sisters, and sometimes, you know, strife happens between brothers and sisters. Sometimes they say, occasionally, I've seen it once in the Burns household, right? Strife between them. What does it mean for me to be 
a Burns kid, a Hurtado kid, a Hampton kid, a whatever kid in this room, what does it mean for me to lay my life down as a young man or woman in Jesus? Number one, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. We saw this in Jesus, right? Just, just I mean, I'm going to give you a couple examples, but we can pull more than this. We saw the genuineness of Jesus' love. We saw it after Jesus rises from the dead, and all of his disciples have totally abandoned him. They've built all chickened out, and they've cowered. They're all in the room, and Jesus, like, boom, comes through the wall and materializes. And he's like, peace be with you. Why is he saying that? Because peace is not with them. The one they just turned their backs on after three years has just walked through a wall and is standing there. There's anything but peace in their hearts. Right? Number one, walk through a wall, resurrected guy. Number two, we totally betrayed him. Right? And, but the genuine love of Jesus where he's like, peace be with you. Peace be with you. What tenderness. Amazing. Genuine love that, chose him, that caused him to stay on that cross. Man, can you imagine just all the pain, all the agony stretched out on a cross? People spitting on you, hitting you with rods. The, you're, you're, the people you've, dis- you've invested in, they're all like running home. Um, people are, are, are quoting scripture at you in heretical ways. Like just such, such genuine love to continue to stay there and not with words splinter the cross and impale every soul with an eyesight. Like what genuine tender love. We saw Jesus' love. It wasn't simply a feeling. It wasn't the word. We say genuine love because we didn't say Jesus' love because he said, I love. We see Jesus' love and genuineness because he's not only said it and he said the truth of it, but way beyond simply saying it, he was full of actions. But way beyond actions, there was an intent of the heart. In the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that passage we quote in, in weddings all the time, love is gentle, love is kind. All that is very true. There's some amazing things packed around that. Though. One of those say, say, Though I give my body to be burned and have not love, I have nothing. And Christ furthermore says, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. So the greatest expression of love would be self-sacrifice to death. And even that can be done without it being love. Love is a perspective of the heart, not simply in action, and by far not simply emotion, and by far not simply words that we say. So he says, let love be genuine. Love is a chosen, genuine heart perspective, an embracing of one we decide to delight in, often before we've experientially tasted of that delight. So let me just, I'll say this again, but when we decide to love someone, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick someone I'm going to love today. Oh, the crowd is rich with targets out there. Target environment. <laughs> okay. We got John Eagle over there. Okay, so I, I, well God calls me, Scott, love John Eagle. And I go... <sighs> All right, I love John Eagle. Okay, way more than that. It's not going to work. I'm going to do something nice for John Eagle. Or like, but God, I don't feel all warm and fuzzy in my heart for John Eagle, as glorious as he is. Um, I don't feel all warm and fuzzy. God is calling us to love, and so it is a call for me to set a perspective on him where I'd embrace him at a heart level, to embrace his welfare, to love him long before I might experientially feel such delights actually come out of my heart. You love by decision first. Love is an obedience first, and then God will fill in those pieces. If you don't know what that's like, get married. So love is a chosen, genuine heart perspective and embracing of the one we decide to delight in often before we've experientially tasted of that delight. Love is genuine. Jesus says to you, you're my kingdom. You say, okay, my king. What do you want me to do? He goes, love. And we say, I've seen it. 
He goes, love like me. Let love be genuine. Genuinely love that sister or brother who is just taking your stuff again. Genuinely love that sister or brother who has defamed you. Genuinely love those people who've hurt you. Genuinely love, genuinely love, genuinely from the heart love. We worship, number one, by loving genuinely. Number two, verse 12, sorry, chapter 12, verse 9, second part. Funny statement. We worship by pure righteousness. We worship by pure rightnesses. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. What's funny is we don't use the word abhor very often in English, but I think most of us are pretty familiar with it. Who here has never heard the word abhor? Sweet. Okay, we're pretty safe. We're pretty safe. Most of us got abhor is a word um, based upon a Greek word. It is the word hatred, but the word away from ahead of time. It is hating to the point of like complete rejection. Completely reject evil. Hold fast to what is good. Super strong words here. No half-heartedness, no toleration. Um, picture of separation and clinging to. Maybe, the, maybe if you want to see what this is like, it's like a, like a kid in a social environment who's scared to death, who does not want to be touched by anybody but mom. A- hands, legs, suckers, everything is pushed to like shove it away. Arms and legs wrapped around mom because mom is safe. Complete abhorring of all things, clinging to that which is Good. So, backing it up just simply, what does it mean to lay down your life as a sacrifice to Jesus? Jesus says, evil, absolutely abhor it. Good, absolutely cling to it. We saw Jesus do this, right? We, we read that there's no unrighteousness in him. We read that even Jesus' foes know that he's good. They call him good teacher. Good teacher. 1 John 3, 3 says, everyone who thus hopes in himself purifies him as he is pure. Jesus is pure. There's no temptation in Jesus now. There's no sin ever in Jesus. Jesus is absolutely pure. He looked at temptation straight in the face, trusted the Lord, and walked on because Jesus completely abhorred evil. He never played around with it. So this comes into us in two ways. Number one, internally, um, we have sin, right? Those of us who know Jesus, we have sin, no doubt about it. If you want to see it, uh, fellowship with me for like three hours. I'm not, pl- I'm not enlightening the fact that I've sinned, but I just wrestle. I'm always encountering some kind of temptation to be angry or lazy or lustful or something under the sun. There's just no shortage of temptations in my heart, and some of those I give into. And some of you guys have seen it firsthand. Some of you guys have seen me sin. But by God's grace, what you hopefully you don't see me do is for me to hold on to that. When it does occur in my heart, that I repent and push it off. The same thing be true of any of us as Christians. You will encounter sin in your life, but you'll be repentant of it. You will abhor it. It will have no spot for you. You won't say, oh, that's just my personality. Oh, I'm just a jerk. That's my personality. I'm just a thief. That's my personality. I'm just an adulterer. That's my personality. I'm just angry. That's my personality. I'm just assertive in vicious ways as personality. No, no, no. We take sin and abhor it. Because Jesus did that. Jesus, full of strength and mercy and goodness, had nothing to do with the sin. So inside of it, we need to not excuse but hate our impatience. And instead, look to the Lord and, and, um, and embrace patience. We need to hate our loveless indifference to those dying around us and embrace compassion. We need to abhor our volatility and grumpiness that characterizes us in our homes for the sin that it is and embrace the good humility of gentleness. Add whatever your sin is to that. Abhor your personal sin. And then externally, we abhor sin. 
So we have to discover what good and evil is. I, I know this, sounds, this may sound weird to you, unless you really practice it, but you weren't born a Christian. Okay, you just weren't. You might have been born in the most Christianity of all Christiany Christian homes. You weren't born a Christian. Nor did you awaken in this world thinking with the ethic of heaven, the ethic of Jesus. Hopefully your parents brought that in because God told them to raise you in the teaching, the admonition of the Lord. He told them to indoctrinate you, and actually everybody's trying to indoctrinate you. But he told them to indoctrinate you with his truth because the world is already indoctrinating you with their truths and your social truths. So when we come to know Jesus, part of what we have to learn is we have to learn the difference between good and evil. Because you have been preloaded with the cultural sets of good and evil. And when we come to Jesus, it's all on the table. You're all in the water, right? And like, all right, Jesus, I'm all in except for my moral base. I'm keeping that one dry. That one's going to be mine. No, everything belongs to Jesus. Everything does. And so we sit and say, God, I have a strong sense of morality and good and evil regarding all kinds of things like abortion and gender and marriage and divorce and neutral ground and immunity of private actions and racism and sexism and consensuality. I have all kinds of thoughts on that. And she goes, I know you have all kinds of thoughts that I'm going to teach you the truth. So part of our joy is to go, you know what, Jesus, we've watched you walk in this earth and we've heard you teach and you are the, you are the way, the truth and life. And we want your information. We want to know it's true. I'm not one of those stunning cases of an amazingly enlightened individual that God rescued out of darkness, but I was all light myself. No, actually, even in my thinking, even my senses of right and wrong. So we have to discover what is good and evil from God himself and not drink it from what you have inside of you or what you will watch on social media this day, on whatever your news channel is of choice. Because they're all wicked. They're all constructs of this world. They're not, not Jesus. There's no Jesus news at 12. Right? It's all this world, and so it's always going to have a mingling of stuff, some good and some evil coming in. So we look to Jesus to discover what is good and evil. And once we find it with evil, we have to treat it with sterility. Don't touch it. Abhor it. Don't accept it. Don't protect it. Don't adorn it. Don't beautify it. Don't celebrate it. Don't make it look good because it is abhorrent because it is evil and it is against the heart of Jesus. <sighs> All right, so number two. We worship God by decidedly hating what he hates and loving what he loves. And brothers and sisters, I think for some of you guys, that may be something you need to think about deeply. Some of us inside our hearts, we have called things personality that are actually sin. And then number two, externally, um, some of us have not done a good job of understanding that we have imported our own sense, probably a somewhat of a cultural sense of right and wrong into God's kingdom. And instead, we need to forfeit that book of right and wrong that you imported and sit at Jesus' feet and say, it's all yours. Teach me and show me what is good and what is evil. And as he shows you what is good and what is evil, completely abhor that which is evil, completely cling to that which is good. We worship God by decidedly hating what he hates and loving what he loves. Third, we worship by advancing our family. We worship by advancing our family. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Men's retreat. This was a theme. I heard a bunch of guys. I can't remember what it was. There's a bunch of guys at the food line, and they're all like, I outdo you in showing you honor and letting you go for it. It's something like that. I, I just remember that as I was studying it this week. So the phrase outdo one another in showing honor tends to, in our English hearing, see like, okay, what does Tristan do to me? And then I'm going to honor him even bigger than that, right? It's like a reciprocating honor. 
But the wording here is actually not that. This is, the word here is lead the way in showing honor. Like, this is proactive. Don't wait for Aaron to strike first. We, I strike first. This is an amazing picture of what we see in Jesus. We saw Jesus in the selflessness in his words where he tenderly calls us uh, in our MC this week. We were uh, looking at a passage and reading it. Said, And he said, little flock, right? Little flock is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Like such tender words of Jesus to a bunch of boneheads, right? Such tenderness, right? Um, but we saw this, this, um, this, this brotherly affection and love in words like little flock. We see his tenderly affection and love do you guys remember last week? Oh, it was Easter last week. We talked about Lazarus. And it wasn't in the passages, kind of after in case you're reading it. But every Christian kid knows that the shortest verse in the Bible is? There we go. Jesus wept, shortest one. And, um, and that's after the passage we had last week in our text. Why did he weep? Because Jesus shows up and he sees the pain of Lazarus passing. Even though he knows he's about ready to pop that bad boy up in a second. But the pain of Lazarus being dead and the pain of his sisters and everything that's around him. Jesus wept. We see that brotherly affection. He honors Peter, right? He's going to make Peter a key cornerstone in the church, even though Peter is not very impressive at that point in time. And then even those tender words of, I will come and I will return and take you to myself. So just, just think about the kindness and the self, the, the other's advancing nature that we saw. It was an amazing thing we saw in Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus says. So when we say, Jesus, here I am. My, second, my life is yours. He goes, okay. When it comes to others, the brother, particularly brotherly affection, the language here is brotherly, sisterly. This is in God's family. We are to love one another with brotherly affection and to lead the way in showing honor. That means proactively go get it, not wait for Chris to honor you and then you try to one-up him. Like, man, he set the bar high. I'm going to let the honor. No, sit back and think and pray. How do we honor Chris, right? Christ tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. More. Have this mind among you, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, because that's what Jesus did. He counted me and you as more significant than himself and came down here and became a man and did this amazing work. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, to the point of death, even death on a cross. We follow Jesus in loving one another from the heart, committing our hearts to one another, really loving those that God has placed into our fellowship. So this is one of the reasons we do missional communities. Everybody who walks through that back door to come experience the family of God, either like because uh, they don't know Jesus, they want to, or they already know him, every single one of those people need to experience this kind of stuff. And so if we don't break up into sections and zones, they're going to have to get so loud and so cool and so amazing that eventually they get into some amazing click here, right? So structurally as a church, we break ourselves into missional communities so that every single person, there's space for them to come and experience being honored, experience being loved, and for them to ex exercise that themselves because God has called us to be tied at a brotherly affection, not at having our hips six inches apart once a week on perforated chairs, right? Tied in brotherly affection, tied there. Mutual love. We see them as more important to us even when they're physically younger than us or spiritually younger than us. And so we will shift our Sunday morning when our younger brother wants to get baptized. And some of us will lose hours, hours taking some of our young brothers and sisters to Frappuccinos to talk to them about Jesus. See it. It's beautiful. We do it to the old. We do it to the young because we are brotherly and sisterly connected. We worship by pouring out our hearts into the welfare 
and joy of our spiritual family. Fourth, we worship by passion. Worship by passion. Look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So what's handy is whoever broke up these verses here um, did a great job. They're all like little triads, right? Little things that come together. This here is number one, we worship by passion. We saw this in Jesus, right? Was Jesus like milk toast and like a passionate, float, a passionless floating guy? No, 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 no. Jesus was white hot burning with passion. The man stayed in the wilderness for 40 days without eating. That, my friends, is passion. It says of Jesus that zeal for your house has eaten me up. That was prophesied in the Old Testament. That was expressed by God, Jesus, in his passion for the temple and for the worship of the Lord. It says he, he has such passion that he set his face like a flint. He knew what he had to do in Jerusalem. He knew he had to die, and he got on it. He set his face like a flint. There's longing in his heart as he says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. I mean, listen to the passion. The city that kills the prophets and, st- and stones those who are sent to it. How often I... Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood on her wings and you are not willing? O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. Jesus is zealous. Jesus is passionate. I doubt that most of us would not be able to identify where we tend to have passion and zeal in our lives. And it's okay to have passion and zeal in your life. It's great to be excited about your sporty sport team. It's okay to have a great heart for rescue animals. It's okay to have a heart for this cause, that cause, and some things that you like. But passion and zeal, the thing that sits on top, Jesus, the King of Heaven, his heart was a heart of zeal and passion for the glory of God, for the advancement of his kingdom, for the mission, and for us. And as we sit before Jesus and say, Jesus, all right, I'm yours, he goes, let's talk about the engine. Let's talk about the passion. He goes, not lagging in zeal, fervent passion, literally passion, a spirit that is boiling. Is literally the words there. Spirit boiling, serving the Lord. God is calling you as his child to do just as we saw in Jesus. Be all about it. Not casual. Not to say, oh, I've seen better. Because you haven't. You won't. Christ is worthy of all of that. So we come to him. We put our hearts there. And I might just say this, guys. The reality is you may not, as we talked about love, you may not feel naturally zealous about the Lord. Um, I have had many conversations this, this month about the glory of God and my felt indifference to the, to the glory of God. It makes no sense. I see things that show the glory of God. I'm really amazed by those, but then turning to him and my sense of amazement, often it's just kind of cold and it's, it's, it's gross. And so I'm on my knees, various spots of my life, just saying, Lord, please, I'm, I belong to you. It's about you. So please let me see. Give me a heart. That, that, that models this. Give me a heart that's impacted this. Let my heart feel great zeal and passion for you. So if you don't have it, don't act like you don't. Confess it to the Lord because you know how you get zeal and passion? It's given to you by the Lord and then he points your nose towards it. So if you want to have passion, you ask the Lord for it and then don't just lay there in the fetal position. Feed the zeal. Feed the passion. Be in God's word more. Chase the Lord in prayer because if you're saying, God, I want it, and then you're like, I'll just go watch a couple hours of Netflix, you ain't going to get it because you're saying, God, I want passion, and you're saying, but I'm just going to diet on entertainment, and your heart will acclimate towards being the heart of the entertained. So if you want to have zeal for Christ, you got to feed it. Repent from it, see it, feed it, but target it. God has designed you to be smoking white hot for Jesus. That's the way he's designed you. You're saying it's not my personality. 
I know, but that's your new nature. That's where he's taking you. You're not going to be all blasé in heaven in the back watching some old ESPN feed while, while the, the Jesus is being coronated. Your heart's going to be set on fire. So ask him for it now as much as he'll give it to you. We worship by feeding the zeal and passion our heart for God, his glory, his kingdom, his mission, and the souls around us. Fifth, we worship by relentless joy. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. We see in Jesus, um, hours praying in the garden, the same prayer. He's, he's going away to a desolate place to pray all the time. He's peacefully choosing not to respond to Pilate. He's on trial. You know, Pilate's kind of giving him some, 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 some slow pitches to hit out, whatever, and Jesus is like, nope, I know what I've got to do. Like just that settled spirit that we see in him. Then he goes, I go to prepare a place for you. Right, man, just so focused. Hope, we've seen in our text before. Biblical, when you see the word hope in Scripture, you think, if you hear it in English ears, it's a not likely thing to happen. I sure hope we win. I sure hope someone gives me a big house and a car. Uh, we use English hope as something not likely to happen. Biblical hope is quite the opposite. It is certain. This is going to happen. And so when I said this is a passive intensity, what does hope look like? It's hope so much that you rejoice. It's hope, it's patience, uh, it's tribulation stayed in so long, and it's patience in that tribulation. It's prayer, but not just prayer, but constant in prayer. We constantly live there. Oh, I just have to show it to you because I said I would to someone else. Y your tribulations and the things that are burning your heart are not small to the Lord, okay? So I just mentioned having glory for the Lord. But as you start and you walk with Jesus, quite often the things around you just tear you up, right? Um, I read this verse when I was in high school. I like this verse a lot. Now, uh, things that tore me up in high school were lesser things to me now. Really, really big things back then. I was lonely. I dug a couple girls who never dug me. Um, and uh, and it, yeah, I know it's, 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 it is funny, but back then it's like shudders your soul. You're crushed, right? So, here we go. Uh, this is Scott Burns' Letterman jacket right here, right? And uh, right, where is that? Right here. Um, Where'd it go? Other side? Oh, right here. That'd be Romans 12, 12, right? Because as a, as a well, I wasn't very tiny at that point in time, but like um, as a young man shuddered by these smaller things, God took me to this passage as I read his word. And I saw in basic, simple ways, rejoicing in hope, patient tribulation, continuing steadfast in prayer. And he gave me the heart to believe it. Now, it wasn't to the ends of which I hoped it would be at that time. He had far far better ends than I thought at that time. But he did, because your challenges, my friend, wherever you're at in life, are significant. The promise is to you. He doesn't say, oh, just be patient in really, really amazing tribulations when, like, you're bleeding or your marriage is ending or cancer is there. You know, he goes, in tribulations. So whatever the things are that God's giving in your world that are testing your faith, go to him in those things. Continue constant prayer and rejoice. Then finally, our last piece is this. We worship by providing Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We see it in Jesus caring for the physical needs of the crowds, right? That fish and bread, that wasn't just a cool trick. The people needed food. Jesus was concerned for them because they were famished. We see Jesus, <laughs> one of the coolest passages ever. After the resurrection, the boys are back in the boat fishing. We see Jesus whipping up breakfast on the shore for them. The resurrected Jesus 
cooking up shore for his uh, um, shore meal for the guys. It's amazing. It's just tenor providing for their needs. Then we see Jesus on the cross. Remember Jesus all strung out, bleeding out, dying in agony. And what does he do in the middle of that? Hey John, behold your mom. Which means, hey John, my mom, who apparently Joseph isn't around anymore, was under my care, but I'm now giving my mom, I'm not asking you, I'm <laughs> giving you my mom to care for her and to be her provider for her. Like while he's dying. How do, we, how do we worship the Lord? By following Jesus' example, right? To contribute to the needs, the genuine needs. So the word here is really interesting. Contribute to the word here is actually the word like we build fellowship off of. So when you see the saints have needs, you fellowship in them. Like you take them on. They become, your, they become our needs together. That's not a need to be d- pitched into, but, but that's our need over there. It's our need over there. It's like when you get two paychecks a month, most of us need both those paychecks. We would never go, well, the bills on the first half of the month have been too big, but then the second half of the month's paycheck goes, <laughs> that's not my problem, <laughs> right? That's not my problem. That's the, my paycheck is over here for my bills on this side. No, no, no. We are one bank account. We are one household. Both come in for both sets of needs, and that's the way God describes his needs in the church is your needs are my needs and my needs are your needs. And not only to do that, but to seek to show hospitality. Not like, well, when it hits you like a freight train, host a party. Hospitality, which is availing your home and homeness to people. Seek it. Seek it. Seek it. Like t- to ad- address and shape life in a way that you want to seek the opportunity to bring the sense of home to those people that don't belong in your home. Stranger love. So we worship God by taking God's children's needs as our own and proactively seeking to show hospitality. We've seen Jesus do all these things, haven't we? And if you, you, my brothers and sisters, have received God's mercy and you're his, um, the most beautiful thing we've ever seen in this world is Jesus. Reading through his Gospels, um, these are just simply descriptions of his life, and they're the intensities of that. And Jesus calls you into that. What does it mean to follow him as a living sacrifice? To follow his character or heart in these ways in this text today to these points with such intensity. And brothers and sisters, it's beautiful. We commonly say in the gospel that Jesus is right and he is good. And one of the greatest ways that we can demonstrate his goodness is living these things out while the world works so hard at trying to find that Jesus' version of sexuality is actually good and Jesus' version of finances is actually good, while they circle those things, if we lay underneath it a life of these beautiful excellencies before them, it could be a great, amazing part of the mission. And even more important than that, Jesus delights in it. Jesus will never reduce or increase his love for you. But as we follow him, his heart is delighted more and more and more. And that's a sweet thing when we can bring delight to the God of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and um, just pray that you would help us by your spirit. Lord, um, um, let us not move past the words in this. Please let us all be struck where is helpful, most helpful by your spirit, where our thinking needs to be expanded. And uh, maybe we'd just be really helped by a shift in our thinking and exposure to something we haven't been exposed to here today. Maybe it's zeal. Maybe it's hospitality. Maybe it's abhorring that it's evil. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that your spirit would help us become more like Jesus by the transformation of our minds. We pray that, Lord, for your glory and for your pleasure. And we pray that for your honor. We pray that for the advancement in our joy. And we pray that for the sake of missions that people might see you. Jesus, 
You are our king and our treasure. We are blessed to be your kingdom. Please make us look like the king and look like that from the heart. We love you. We ask that you would please be with us. We celebrate communion, Lord. Give us hearts to confess sin, rest in the work of Jesus. Give us hearts to sing with authenticity. Give us hearts to celebrate with Noah uh, in the waters of baptism. We love you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.